Nicholas Bornois of Capital Inc. I would like to welcome you to the ETF uh, roundtable. Uh, I'd like to thank the New York Stock Exchange for their partnership over the years um, and for helping us to put this event together. And every year, uh, among other, they're also putting together this great panel. So I will turn it over to Doug Jonas, um, who is in charge of exchange-traded products of the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, thank him for putting this great panel together, and he will introduce the panelists. And Doug, the floor is yours, and thank you again. Uh, thank you so much, Nicholas. Good to see your face. I look forward to, uh, to, to the 21st annual when we can be back together. Uh, but welcome to the ETF Industry Roundtable. This is the 20th annual Capital Links Closed-End Funds and Global ETFs Forum. I'm excited to be here. For anyone I don't know, my name is Douglas Jonas. I head up the Exchange Traded Products Group uh, at the New York Stock Exchange. I am really excited to be moderating today's panel. Thank you all for joining us. I'm here with, with not just three friends, but three industry veterans of the ETF marketplace. So I'm going to quickly introduce them, but of course you could go through uh, the, the website and take a look through profiles. Uh, we have Gunjan Chohan. She is the global head of Spider Capital Markets for State Street Global Advisors. Paul Kim is the CEO and co-founder of Simplify ETFs. And Arna Nowak is the head of Systematic Investment Solutions for DWS. Uh, team, thank you so much for being here to share your thoughts. I wanna kick right off. Uh, Gunjan, State Street has been there since literally the beginning of the ETF marketplace, launching the very first US listed ETF with SPY. Certainly over the years, we have seen the usage of ETFs change quite dramatically uh, first trading vehicles, investment vehicles. I'm curious from State Street's uh, point of view, talk to us about the various use cases for ETFs today. How's that changing? Is it changing going into the future? You know, what does the landscape look like? Yeah, Doug, thanks for the question. And look, it's lovely to be here with everybody. So thank you so much for having me part of today's session. I really appreciate it. Um, I think you're right. You know, um, the world of ETF trading has, has changed dramatically. And I think some of that change has certainly been accelerated by the events that we saw of March last year through the height of COVID volatility. But fundamentally, the use cases of ETFs, at least from what we've seen, they've expanded. You know, you've got the use cases that are still very much there front and center, whether it's cash equitization to really minimize cash drag on portfolios, whether it's for liquidity management and making sure that ETFs now play more of a core role in the liquidity sleeve for portfolio managers, or whether it's really supporting asset allocation, tactical or strategic, um, all of those use cases are very much still there. What we've really seen is the expansion of those use cases. So what's really coming to the forefront now, alongside some of the more traditional hedging or transition management use cases, is ETFs being used as a price discovery tool, as we saw through the height of COVID, for traditional fixed income investors. ETFs, with the transparency that they are actually offering the traditional fixed income investors, have really widened the, the use cases for, for that subset and that core group. That's also allowed a number of new entrants to also come into the marketplace. Perhaps some traditional fixed income investors that were used to trading single name bonds are really now drawn to the efficiencies of trading hundreds and sometimes thousands of QCIPs at a click of a button through the ETF wrapper and the efficiencies that that trading mechanism in and of itself, alongside the transparency, actually offers the traditional OTC markets. So I think we've seen um, the use cases expand 
and also the entrance into the ETF trading world also expand. Thanks for that. And, and Paul, um, I, I, you know, you've been in this market for a while. We've been together many years. You've, you've been in a number of different places, but now you, as, as the, the, the founder here of Simplify, you are absolutely taking on what we'll maybe call the institutional investment use cases of, of ETFs. Can you, can you explain how you thought about that space and, and to the audience what you've been working on? Sure. And thanks, Doug. And thank you, everyone, uh, for this opportunity. Um, we're a relatively new ETF firm. Uh, we're staffed by a number, a large number of uh, extremely experienced veterans from the largest institutional asset managers, uh, multi-billion dollar hedge funds and family offices and RAs. And I think um, ETFs continue to be a uh, really, really interesting tool for, uh, for the smallest and the largest increasingly investors. And I think the use case in the institutional space is really, really tied to the current investment horizon and environment for everyone, right? So it's a universal struggler, struggle. What are the three main struggles that we're seeing? Uh, one, stretch valuations across all assets and obviously uh, fear of sort of drawdowns and things like that. Two, reaching for yield in a very low yield and often negative yielding world. Um, and three, how to find diversification when bonds, because they are at such low yields, are increasingly correlated with risk assets. And I think one institutional use case made possible recently uh, through continued adoption of derivatives inside of ETFs, um, and recently in October of 2020, uh, the passing of uh, the derivatives rule, which pro uh, provides flexibility for all 40 act funds, including ETFs and RICs actually, uh, to make greater use of derivatives. It's opened up the playbook, if you will, to use things like options, which are great complements to bonds, right? Bonds and other sort of strategies like low vol or factor investing are often correlation-based hedges, i.e. things that generally zig when equities and risk assets zag. But I think uh, when you complement those correlation-based hedges with direct hedges, including options, it gives uh, professional asset allocators a little bit more of a toolkit in terms of protecting downside, right? For, again, the stretch valuation concerns, uh, generating income and yield when you have such low yields everywhere. And then finally, uh, guaranteeing diversification, unlike, unlike the correlation-based uh, hedges, which often flip in correlations. Uh, finally, I think ETFs, just a uh, general trend, ETFs remain the investor vehicle of choice. Um, even the largest institutions, and again, including the pensions and endowments of the world, find ETFs to be very convenient, very cost-effective, and uh, are increasingly a part of their portfolio. Yeah, thank you for that. And, and you know, it is, it is so interesting over the years to watch uh, more and more complex structures come into the ETF wrapper. I mean, in the beginning, the early days, we always talked about ETFs as just mutual funds with this wrapper so that they could list on an exchange. And, and that's really what they've become is, you know, a mutual fund-like structure where you, you have a lot of, of different and unique benefits within a single wrapper. Uh, Arna, I want to, Arna, excuse me, I want to come to you um, and talk a little bit about D DWS, right? You've got this, this very large global footprint. You personally are speaking to clients all around the world. I'm wondering how those conversations have maybe changed from the clients that are using your ETFs. Are they using them differently in the past, you know, or now versus how they have in the past? Yeah. Uh, first of all, Doug, uh, let me add my thanks and appreciation to those of the previous speakers for, for having me on this panel. 
I would certainly agree with Gunjan in terms of uh, the observations, especially when it comes to institutional usage. Um, what we're seeing is very much that there is an evolution of use, use cases that is very distinct and specific to the different client segments that we service. So for example, when we speak about um, insurance companies here in the US, there is very much a, a renewed and increasing desire to find out how ETFs can be useful for the purpose of, um, uh, of their special accounts, of their general accounts, and see what we can do in partnership with those insurance clients. And in particular, when we look at our fixed income ETF range, in particular at high yield fixed income, uh, we have a couple of very clear use cases for, an, for insurance clients here. Um, separate to that, um, we have, let's say, a certain evolution in the more wealth management uh, or wealth-facing, retail-facing space. Um, and the, the form it takes here is a, a lot of our financial advisors engage in conversation around ESG, so environmental, social, and governance-related aspects, and want to find out how they can utilize ETFs for the purpose of uh, either accomplishing certain value-based portfolios or a generic improvement across all those factors. And, and, and what really helps us here, and Doug, you alluded to that already, is our global footprint. Because of course, you know, whilst ESG investing is very much a global phenomenon, there are very meaningful regional uh, specificities and, and differentiated developments. Uh, broadly speaking, you know, European regulation um, and in particular regulation as it pertains to the wealth management space has been tightening significantly when it comes to ESG. We have not seen the same development here in the US, but certainly the SEC has a very clear eye on anything that relate, uh, that pertains to ESG. Um, it is generally in mainstream newspapers, um, you know, in, in various forms. So for us to have a strong foundation in Europe, we seek to import a lot of our knowledge here for the benefit of our US-based clients and help them find efficient solutions. That in an ideal world, of course, is being implemented utilizing our ETFs, and that's very possible, but doesn't necessarily uh, need to be limited to that ETF conversation. So back to your question, I would say the evolution is really dependent on the different client segments that we serve. You know, you bring up this topic of ESG and such a great it's happened. both as well as thinking about and um, Doug, I'm afraid we lost you. Um, I think I caught some parts of that, um, but just wanted to check in if you if you're back. Oh, now we lost him completely. Um, I did catch some of um, some of Doug's question, and and I think what he was um, trying to ask was in relation to ESG investing. Um, so I'll I'll just pick up on here as it sort of also alludes to or connects to the, the previous point that I made. Um, when we look at the the US ETF market in particular, one of the fastest growing segment is environmental, social, and governance related investing. Um, uh, billions of dollars have poured into that segment over the past, I would say, year and a half. And in particular, the pandemic has been 
a boon for ESG-based strategies. And what I would say, and, and what of course uh, we are uh, encouraging people to have is that there is very much different segments or different colors of ESG, so to speak. So as I already um, mentioned, the, uh, you know, the topic of ESG pertains to environmental, social and governance related aspects. Um, and Darko, welcome back. Uh, I was uh, trying to uh, essentially uh, infer, infer from, from what, what I did, I did here, here. Um, so that maybe you want to repeat the, the question so our audience can, uh, can follow up. Yeah, so sorry about that. I'm not sure what's happening, but but I I just so asked you to kick off the conversation around ESG investing, and you know we say ESG and it comes up in so many headlines. But how should investors think about that space as an investment? Great. So I was rightfully intuiting what you were <laughs> trying to point to in your question. So I appreciate the clarification. And um, so essentially following on to that, uh, a, a couple of points to make, of course, E stands for environment, so S stands for social, G for governance. So just from looking at those three terms, you can also see, already see that the term ESG covers a broad swath of possible topics. So you as an investor should always be clear that, you know, no broad ESG strategy is like, likely to be like any other. So really understand what is it that both, you know, is it that you're looking at as well as does it fit with your own desires? Or for example, instead of wanting to have a broad look at all ESG related aspects, you as the investor decide, hey, uh, I agree social and governance related aspects are important, but for the purpose of this specific portfolio allocation, I really want to consider environmental aspects. And therefore I really only care about the E part and, and what all uh, what 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 all falls under the E part? So, uh, I would say, generally speaking, ESG-based investment is best served by slowing down, by understanding what is covered by ESG, understand exactly does that align to my own personal objectives and values, and see if I can engage with either wealth manager or an asset manager in a conversation to hone exactly how can I best fit my needs with existing investment vehicles. And that's really what we want to be here for clients to, instead of, uh, you know, finding, you know, ready-made boxes to sell, really engage in conversation that uh, are tailor-made and find solutions for the purpose of very specific uh, challenges and problems. Thanks for that. And, and again, um, apologies for my disconnection there. Uh, Gunjan, I want to come to you. This topic is just so big. Uh, and I've seen, you know, SSGA has put out research uh, you know, how are you and your teams discussing this topic? How are you defining ESG as an investment category? Yeah, Doug, um, you know, it is a massive topic. So I do think it does warrant um, the time and, and attention on, on the subject. Um, you heard from Arne, you know, how some of some of the definitions are being uh, interpreted across um, across different organizations and the conversations that we're all having with with clients to really help educate them in the space. I think the definition of ESG investing is, um, is a complicated one. It can be really as simple or as complicated depending upon um, who's defining exactly what it, what it is. And I think you almost need to take a step back and understand um, who's providing the definition and in what context. Um, and what I mean by that is if you take a look at the definition from the Forum of Sustainable and Responsible Investments, they actually align with the UN principles of responsible investments. And their definition would very specifically be that ESG investing is defined as the practice of incorporating 
environmental, social, and governance factors in investment decisions and active ownership. So there's a lot that could be interpreted from that specific definition alone. At SSGA, we further extend that definition to specify that ESG investing is an assessment of material, environmental, social, and governance issues during the investment process. Materiality can actually be defined from State Street Global Advisors' perspective as the relevance of a particular ESG measure to a company or a sector. And that's something we've spent a considerable amount of time investing in, understanding, and then just ensuring that we've got the right data to really get under the hood and into the weeds on some of those specifics. I think it's also worth pointing out that the key point for our team is that we focus on the financially material ESG metrics, as we believe that we have a responsibility to systematically and explicitly include material ESG metrics in the traditional investment analysis and decision-making process. And I think that's where you've seen much of the industry now move towards. We've stepped up from the generation one products and you're now seeing with the proliferation of data, um, more sophistication in the process. Thank you. And, and Paul, I wanna to come to you and, and I don't wanna get you in trouble uh, compliance because uh, you know, you're in kind of pre-launch stage, I'll call it, but. Uh, I'll let you discuss what you're allowed to discuss about personal product plans, but certainly you're no stranger yep. in the world of ESG. You're working in that space. Could you share with us some of your thoughts? Sure. I think uh, the term complicated was used, right, uh, to describe ESG. I think a lot of it is just it's subjective, right? It's it's often values-based investments um, or investing in values are relative or very subjective um, I think there's a lot of consensus of, you know, problems in the world, but how that manis manifests into portfolios and whether those investments actually matter, right? Those are different things. And so the subjective definitions and sort of implications um, may be best handled perhaps even outside a commingled vehicle, right? So instead of ETFs and mutual funds, perhaps this is really where direct indexing is taking shape um, and having much more impact. And then separately, I think um, people can go very micro. So passions, right? Uh, very specific sort of charities or very specific causes instead of very macro at the, you know, three letters, E, S, or G, but getting very specific. So I think um, this is clearly a trend that's not going away. It's clearly a generational and increasingly um, all institutional as well as smaller uh, investors seem to be uh, seeking to impact and think of all stakeholders in their investing. So ESG as a concept continues to grow. I think we're still very, very early innings in sort of defining what ESG really means and giving people the choice to sort of customize and have impact. Uh, our take again, I think we'd, we're exploring more of the passion slash sort of very uh, concentrated um, applications of ESG very specific causes and things like that in, in our current lineup as well as in futures um, and less so on the sort of institutional size, um, you know, sort of common standards and things like that, which is, again, a lot of uh, popular strategies out there and uh, institutions focus on that approach. I think we lost Doug.
Doug likes make, making an appearance and disappears. What can I say? Uh, but here he is again. I think uh, he's coming back on. Why don't we just turn this into discussion instead of uh, yes, Q&A and three minutes? Yes, discussion anyway. I mean, you are the three experts, so please go ahead. Paul, the the, the topic that you the, that you brought up in relation to more specificity, I find very interesting, um, and obviously one of the one of the big topics uh, that that is undeniably there is climate change, which I think is probably something that also Doug wants to lead us to with his next question. <laughs> Un unreal. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Relations of, of computer and technology. Uh, Arna, I, I don't know if you got a chance to kick off, but where I wanted to head was to go a little deeper in ESG. And I want to talk about specifically climate change, because I, I know DWS, you're involved in that space. Could, could you share a bit of your thoughts about what you're seeing from investors and, and how they're looking to invest along the you know, climate change as a purpose? Yeah, with, with great pleasure. And, and this is, and I was saying just as you joined, this is one of the undeniably big topics that for sure has to be on, on everyone's radar in some way or the other and squarely falls into that e-bucket. So there's, there's different aspects of climate change, uh, of course, that affects us across the investment platform. We look and particular, our, my colleagues from our research side have recently published a very interesting report on water risks, which obviously is part of climate change. Um, our, our municipal bond team regularly looks at aspects such as flooding risks and risk out of you know, environmental disasters for the municipal bond portfolio. So all of these little aspects, um, rather significant aspects, not little aspects, but all of these very significant aspects find their way into our investment process across the platform. Specifically, when we look at our ETF offering, we actually recently brought, uh, brought to market uh, a fund that we call Emerging Market Carbon Reduction and Climate Improvers ETF. It's a bit of a mouthful, but uh, we literally, as they say in Britain, wanted to bring something where it does what it says on the tin, meaning we wanted to have a portfolio um, that essentially is an, a broad-based emerging market portfolio, but instead of holding the thousands of thousands of names that are in the MSA Emerging Market Index and essentially have uh, swallow, so to speak, the carbon footprint that often does not look great with some of those companies. We've developed a strategy that has a relatively narrow tracking error. When I say relatively narrow tracking error, it still has a tracking error of roughly 150 basis points. So not overly tight, but also not all over the place. And at the same time, seeks to have a carbon reduction uh, footprint of 60% compared to the parent benchmark. Um, as well as ongoing uh, improvements uh, year over year. So really, um, you know, we wanted to bring to market a tool that allows investors to have a broad-based emerging market uh, fund, but not have the meaningful uh, negative carbon footprint that a traditional index fund portfolio has. Uh, that type of strategy so far has, has proven uh, relatively successful for us. We had uh, institutional client backing for the launch of roughly half a billion dollars. So there is an actual you know, commitment for that type of strategy, which in our view is something that is very, very uh, critical from an investor standpoint and where on, from our standpoint, we also would like to see 
uh, future development, both on the uh, asset owner as well as investor side, as well as from our perspective through the investment uh, asset manager platforms. Thanks for that. And, and Gunja, before we leave the topic, any final thoughts, particularly around maybe climate change? Yeah, yeah. Look, I think I'm coming off of the back of um, some of the comments that Arne made. You know, I, I think um, as I touched upon on the overall theme of ESG, I think we we're now at the stage where we've had some first generation products in the market for a number of years. And they focused on some of the basic exclusions of, of carbon producers. But with the proliferation of data now, it's really allowed us, I think, as an industry to pursue broader investment mandates. I think at a headline level, some of the key driving forces on, on certainly from our side where we're seeing the investor demand generate from are, are the regulations, um, are through some of the policies that are coming into effect. Um, and I think it's, it's no surprise, you know, when we take a look and see where the landscape is globally, in terms of the investor appetite, you know, we're really seeing EMEA investors lead the way. Um, so I think that there will be a slightly different rollout in terms of the timelines and investor readiness. Um, but I do, I do think that we will continue to see um, beta solutions across, across the marketplace um, offering access to these exposures as more and more investors begin to use climate as a, as a core exposure in their portfolios. I'd love to add like one more thought there too. I yeah. think uh, in some yeah. some way, the market, the pure passive approach, right? Indexing seems to be doing an okay job if you think about multiples for green tech companies versus sort of your old industry and energy companies and of that sort. So uh, I'm not sure that the growth of ESG will meaningfully change valuations in the sort of the big picture, but I think either way, the market's headed there, clearly pricing in things like investor preferences and and sort of policies and market support. And so uh, remains to be seen how much an ESG specific mandate versus what the market is already doing on its own um, has a bigger impact. Yeah, very, very fascinating and fast growing place. So obviously more to come, <clears throat> much more dialogue, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, for our panelists. I sent all the questions out in case I have another computer issue, you have them in front of you. So <laughs> for, for everyone watching, I apologize. Uh, but let's keep going, you know, as we're short on time, I want to change topics. Gunjan, if I could stick with you for a moment, you have produced, you and your team have produced, a, a, you know, a lot of research around uh, fixed income and the idea of, of fixed income liquidity and how that marries itself into ETFs when we start to wrap ETFs around fixed income. So I was wondering if you could share some of the research your team has, has produced and, and help enlighten the audience in, in this space. Yeah, look, Doug, I think, um, you know, this was really accelerated by, again, some of the data points that we were able to gather through the in insights of, of the COVID volatility and, and really what happened in fixed income ETF trading in particular. Um, and, you know, very intrigued by what we, what we saw on our side, which was fixed income ETFs be additive um, towards providing, if you like, a liquidity buffer in some cases where the underlying bonds in and of themselves were not trading or, or the return of, of quotes was, was taking longer than, than usual on the, on the traditional platforms um, of, of dealers. So, so that for us was hugely fascinating. You know, how far do you go along the curve when you consider the underlying liquidity of a, of a single name instrument, bonds in this case, and, and how you compare and contrast the liquidity of, a, of an ETF made up, a bath, made up of a basket of, of those securities. And, um, and where, do, where do the two come together? Where can they be helpful? And, and um, you know, what is applicable to what type of investor? And, and when we pulsed out in particular institutional investors, 
for institutional investors in the fixed income ETF landscape, liquidity is a significant driver, is what we have found um, amongst their choice of, of either ETF or, or investment um, vehicle or, or method of execution, even when you take a look at platforms. So it's of no surprise that we saw heightened volumes going over exchange. That was a data point in the height of COVID volatility that we saw globally uh, as a consistent theme. And then we also saw um, the increased volumes uh, globally in ETF trading. And, and again, I think that's, that was a really important data point both fueled fundamentally, we believe, by the liquidity that the ETF wrapper offers. So I think there's a real pathway and perhaps an opportunity to do a deeper dive in the marriage of fixed income markets and, and the liquidity that ETF uh, as, a, as a wrapper or as a vehicle can actually offer some of the traditional fixed income markets, market structure, landscape or investors to really, um, to really dig deeper there. And, and, and I'm excited to see what that will bring about in the future. Thank you. And, and for those listening in, by the way, all three of these panelists have fantastic websites. I, I personally spent time on all of them prepping for this panel. Uh, so please go do the same. Arna, I want to come back to you because when I was on the DWS website, you've got quite a bit of content around fixed income. There's a lot of news right now about moving interest rates, where the Fed's going. Uh, to tell us what your investors now as they're looking at fixed income. Yeah. Um so, so in principle, very much would love to echo um, Gunjan's comments just now. Um, whilst traditionally maybe ETFs have been looked at more from sort of through an equity lens, of course, they trade such as stocks on the New York Stock Exchange. They have a bit of an equity look and feel, but that doesn't mean that they're irrelevant for fixed income. It actually means quite the opposite. It means it combines the advantages of equity-like liquidity and fixed income type of exposure. So uh, in the gist of it is very much that no matter you know, whether we, we um, think of ourselves in, 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 in at risk of rising interest rates or whether you have uh, the, the, the position that that risk isn't necessarily imminent, fixed income ETFs most definitely can have a place in people's portfolios. And, and then it sort of goes back into sort of what client group are we talking about or talking to? So, you know, um, are, we, are we having conversations with an asset allocator whose desire it is to have a broadly diversified portfolio, um, but they don't really know how to utilize ETFs in the fixed income world. It would be in relation to, in particular, for example, um, our, our broad range of, not to sound like a broken horse, but ESG fixed income ETFs, how you can get exposure to standard investment grade corporate bonds, emerging market sovereign bonds, maybe high yield corporate bonds, with an ESG angle and still have sort of those bread and butter type of exposures? Or are we talking with insurance companies who have different type of uh, needs, of course, you know, and, and then it, the conversation is around uh, what type of NAIC rating do the funds have? Can the insurance companies receive a look through treatment into the portfolio? So, and, and then of course, you know, the execution question becomes relevant because bond uh, allocators typically are used to, you know, over-the-counter trading, that the pricing works a little bit different to trade something that behaves like a bond, but feels like an equity still sometimes is a little bit alien for some of the execution desk. And that's essentially where, uh, where issuers such as ourselves or Gunjan's team would come in and have the conversation and, uh, with the relevant individuals to make sure that 
you know, that marriage between an equity-like instrument and a bond exposure is really well understood. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, you know, I love how all these topics are kind of combining together into each one of, of the, your businesses. Uh, Paul, as we're getting close to closing out on time, uh, fixed income, really interesting take from the certified group. You actually have an, an ETF that um, that looks at interest rates moves. It's PF, PFIX listed in the Stock Exchange. Uh, can you tell us how that works and as well as any other comments you might have on the on the fixed income markets? Sure. So uh, as I alluded to in an earlier part of our conversation, um, really, there's been all sorts of reasons why asset classes are elevated, right, in valuations. And the biggest bubble, according to many, is actually in the fixed income market, right, with literally negative rates in much of the world and uh, near record rates across uh, the U.S. And so in that world, um, not only is fixed income risk i.e. interest rate risk, a meaningful part of your fixed income book. Um, if you really think about it, it's actually a embedded risk inside of all risk assets, particularly growth stocks that have a lot of implicit duration risk in there. And so we think it's really important to think about that risk. We've benefited from four decades worth of uh, declining interest rates. What happens to portfolios and risks if interest rates start reversing and we're seeing inflation and we're seeing central banks across the globe starting to uh, sort of dial back their stimulus, right? And, and so I think from that perspective, um, how do you hedge an interest rate? Uh, some of the best ways to hedge are actually not available to most investors. Some of the deepest uh, interest rate hedges are actually in the OTC derivative space, particularly things around swaps and swaptions. And so this ETF that we offer effectively provides access to ISDA uh, OTC derivatives uh, swaptions um, that allow very long maturity uh, uh, options to protect against interest rates. Why long maturity? Um, it carries better, so you, you don't sort of bleed away your option premia. Um, it's also means you, you uh, an investor doesn't have to necessarily get the timing correct immediately, right? If you buy a five, six, seven-year option, if rates go up during that time, you have a chance to sort of protect the portfolio versus buying very short-dated and expensive, uh, often high theta, as you call, high decay, decaying options. And that's what we've really packaged, this really effective institutional caliber uh, portfolio of puts on, on uh, interest rates. So if rates go up, this will really hedge not just that allocation, but the entire portfolio. Thanks, Paul. And you know, I know, I know we're out of time. It, 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 your comments and and really um, everyone's comments bring together what I love so much about the ETF marketplace is that there are ETFs for just about anything you're looking at. And I I really invite anyone who's listened in, please go explore the websites between State Street, DWS, Simplify. Uh, come to the New York Stock Exchange website, the home of ETFs.com. A lot of educational out, uh, content out there. Uh, please reach out to any of us. Um, for Paul Gunjan, Arne, I really appreciate you taking the time, sharing your thoughts with everyone today. Uh, we invite your comments. We invite your questions. Thanks for joining us on the panel today. Thanks, Doug. Thank you so much. Well, a big thank you from me as well at the, the closing of the, uh, the session. Thank you, Doug, for putting this uh, excellent panel together. And of course, thank you to all of you for joining and making it so special. Thank you very much. Thank you. To be continued. <laughs>